So whenever we talk about uh, Jewish holidays, uh, it's always important to get a little bit of a historical perspective as to what exactly the day is commemorating. And we all know that Passover is a day when we left Egypt. Thus, it's a very significant day uh, because it's the day of the Exodus and it's the day of redemption and it's, and it's the day that we revisit that experience. Now, what I'm saying that, um, I'm saying that very specifically because in Judaism, we don't believe in memorials. We don't believe in saying, hey, uh, something significant happened in this day. And it's something so significant, we kind of have to remember it. So let's remember it on the day. It's just really convenient. And it's like Labor Day, you know, Labor Day. Let, let's, let's, you know, or American holidays. Let's always make them on a Monday, you know, because let's just have a really long weekend. That's not how uh, the Jewish holidays work. Uh, you know, in, in, in America, where we have two days holiday, sometimes you have a three-day holiday, like with bookended with a Shabbat. That's not really the most optimal design. If you were to design the Jewish calendar, you'd say, well, let's make all Jewish holidays on a Monday. Apparently, that's not, that's not how it works. So we're not memorializing events, you know. Um, on the holidays, we are trying to experience something. We're trying to gain something. We're trying to learn something. We're trying to become a better person as a result of the holiday. Thus, we would say that the holidays are essentially tools. Tools to enable us to become better people, better Jews. Uh, tools to take the unique influence and power of that holiday and use it to propel us forward. So, for example, on the holiday of Passover, it's a time of redemption. Now, which one of us does, needs redemption? So I would say, listen, you know, we're all pretty free. We live in America. You know, we're pretty free. Why do we need redemption? So in Judaism, we'll say, yes, you may be free to do whatever you want, but are you really free? Is there nothing that you, that's holding you back in life? There's no influences or hindrances that uh, stunt your growth? Are you really free? And Passover is the holiday to free us from all those external um, uh, obstacles that prevent us from becoming great people. And the way it works is that because at that time, on the original Passover, there was a tremendous influence uh, of redemption, that creates a certain spiritual station that we revisit every year. This is a little bit of a... If you've heard the idea, it sounds like, you, like it sounds platitudinal. But if you haven't, it's a pretty radical idea. And, that's, and that is that spiritual realities are created with events. So whenever an event happens, an enormous transcendental event happens, that creates a certain influence that can be felt at that time of year when you revisit that in the cycle of the year. So at the Exodus, there was this tremendous influence of redemption that is forever indelibly linked to those days. Thus, when we revisit that spiritual station every year, we are, uh, we are, uh, we, we're, we're, we're enabled uh, to draw in that power. So if you want to know what it was like to experience the Exodus, right, you have to experience the Passover. And you have to develop the sensitivities to try to get the same feelings, the, the, the spiritual antennas to absorb that influence. 
So whenever we talk about Jewish holidays, we always try to move back to the original holiday and or the original event that commemorates or that we're commemorating or we, where are we are reliving. So um, in a week, in a couple of days, we're going to have the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year or the new year, Jewish New Year. And that, of course, is um, a very significant holiday in the Jewish calendar. Uh, and it commemorates a very, very important, in fact, um, several very important events that happened many years back. Uh, does anyone know what we're commemorating, what we're re- are, we are reliving on the holiday of, Pas- uh, of, of Rosh Hashanah? Creation, man, huh? Creation and defining divisive. Creation? Of man. The birth of man, actually. The birth yeah, birth of man. Yeah. Okay. Birth yeah. Of the world, but... Yeah, so... Um, I would have thought that it was creation of the world. It's the new year, right? It's creation of the world. Uh, but in truth, uh, the Talmud tells us that the world created on the 25th day of Elul. Not a very significant day, like that's next Wednesday or Tuesday. You know, No one really commemorates that. Uh, so if it's not the birthday of the world, it's the sixth day. And we know on the sixth day, we meet Adam and Eve. Thus... We could say that Rosh Hashanah is the kind of the birthday or the anniversary of the birthday of mankind. And therefore, perhaps we would say that on this day, this is when we were created. This is when we get renewed. This is the day when we revisit that power. What's the power? Right? The power of the, you know, the, 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 the creation, the unblemished, untainted, unsullied human. Wait, when was that? That was on Rosh Hashanah. Afterwards, it went downhill since, going downhill since. But if we want to think about us and how we could get a fresh start on life, well, maybe Rosh Hashanah is the best day to do that. Rosh Hashanah is the day where we started off, you know, with a clean slate. If we want to get back to that clean slate, if we want to maybe reinvent ourselves or recreate ourselves, this is the day to do it. More than any other day. That's the power of the day. But there's a little bit more here, and I want to just expand the discussion a little bit. Uh, we have spoken in this same room several times about, uh, about the, you know, maybe the most important question that, you, that someone could possibly ask, well, at least one of the most important questions someone could poss- possibly ask, and that is the question of what's the purpose? And the question is a little bit of a, a nuanced, and it's based upon a certain foundation. And that foundation is that once you accept the idea of God, let's assume everyone accepts that. We're post the God question. Everyone believes in God. What does that imply? What does that mandate? Once God is a reality that we accept, what else has to follow? Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense to say that when we accept the idea of God as being true, that also implies that there has to be purpose in the world. Why? If there was this, if there is this tremendously intelligent creator, then there's got to be a purpose for the creation. Because no one of, you know, minor intelligence like us, or at least comparatively minor intelligence like us, would do something so elaborate for no purpose. Right? And that the world is a fairly elaborate place. The universe is, you know, fairly, well, at least from our perspective, very complex. And therefore, we have to ask the question, okay, if we accept the idea of God, okay, now what's it all about? What's it all for? 
And this is a very difficult question to answer because where do you even start with that? You know, that, that's, that's, that's like an advanced question. Like, does the Torah say it? where it is? Is, is it someone mentioned someone in the Torah? Is it, where do you even go to? Like, how do you try to analyze what God wants with this complex uh, creation of, of humanity, of mankind, of the world at large? What tool, like, what are you exactly using to, to analyze this question? It's a very good question. Now, in Judaism, this question is discussed at great length. And all the Jewish philosophers, everyone discusses it. And there are basically two answers. And we, we went through this uh, previously in this class. There are basically going to be about two, two answers, or two main themes that are, going to be this, uh, that are going to be the answers to this major question. Both of them revolve around man. Now, I think this is something that we may know innately, we may feel innately, but it's good to verbalize it. And that is that we say that the purpose is going to revolve around man. Man is the purpose. There's uh, between 1.25 and 8.7 million species out there, besides for us, we're one of them. Uh, And there's also, uh, according to scientists, there's been... Uh, 99% of all species that have ever existed are already extinct. So we're dealing with like 100 million species. Yet we have the audacity to say that all those are ancillary players in this theater of the world. We're the the mainstay, we're the purpose. And that in itself is something you would say, oh, wow, that's, that's a crazy idea. Out of all the cosmos, you know, the trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of stars and all that, you know, our little puny Earth, that is the real center of everything. And not only that, in our Earth where we have, I don't know, millions and millions of species and so much stuff going on, yet we're the, we, we're the purpose of it all. It's a pretty audacious thing. I think people, we, we know that. We realize that we're different. Uh, we're different, you know, not just incrementally different than all the other animals, which is what some people in your, perhaps in your evolution class will want you to believe. We're not just incrementally, we, we, we are, uh, we are f- fundamentally different in, in many ways. Like, we're not like intelligent apes. Uh, if you just put them on a scale, we are on a different class. Uh, and we have qualities and also um, um, uh, drawbacks that, w- that are not in any way comparable to any other entity, to any other species out there. Uh, so while we may know it, but this is what Judaism says. Well, let's accept that as fact, that, it's, that, that, that the purpose is planet Earth and specifically humans. Uh, now, humans for what? So, so, okay, so it's about us. Purpose of the world is about us. Now, what do we need to do? Um, why is it, what about us? Um, um, what, what about humanity uh, makes it that we are the purpose of God's very elaborate creation? Anyone has any ideas that they want to share? Kurt Vonnegut Jr. said our purpose was to be the eyes and ears and consciousness of the universe. That's very poetic. That's good. What does that mean? So, fulfilling God's plan. Yeah, okay, very good. Fulfilling God's plan. Well, well, what is God's plan? It involves us. Okay, let's accept that. He wants to give us the opportunity in this arena to make the choices to be more like him. And involves our free choice, free will choices. So it's more specifically about not just about humanity, but the defining characteristic <coughs> of humanity, and that is our free, free free choice. Which, by the way, is something that no other, no animals have. 
which is that we are not just sophisticated animals. We're not incrementally different. We are fundamentally different. We have free will, and free will is the defining uh, characteristic of humanity, and that is what we're going to use to achieve our purpose. Now, the, the end purpose is going to be one of two things. Either it's going to be us having reward, pleasure, God giving to us, which is something God could not have done otherwise. Why? Because if it's, if it's just God existing, nothing else, well then, who is going to be the beneficiary of God's goodness? Thus, God has to create something else that is able to earn its own goodness via their activities, their free will. So that's one answer. Uh, it's a, obviously uh, needs more elaboration, but let's, let's put that on the side. The other answer given also involves man and man's free will, and that is that man has the keys to do something that no one else has. And that involves taking God's kingdom and expanding it. Now, what does this mean? It's a little bit of a sophisticated idea here. Let's, 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 let's try to unbundle this. God has total dominion over everything. This is, if you accept the Jewish definition of God, that's what you're accepting. One entity, all the power coalesced into that one entity. Anything else that has power has only relative power. So the sun is a very powerful star, wonderful. However, it only has power because God allows it to have power. It's only relative. It's, only, it's not absolute. Uh, the way Maimonides um, uh, couches this, he says that everything is dependent upon God. God is not dependent upon anything. Thus, if God withdraws, everything else ceases. So no power has any power on its own. It's only because God enables it to have power. Which, by the way, when we say the name Elohim, the name Elohim, which as we say with a with an H sound, but we don't say it unless we're talking about it, unless we're saying it in, in the form of, we don't want to say God's name in vain. But the name Elohim means that God has all the powers. That's what the word means. Thus, every power that we see that's not God is only relative. It's only because God allows that to, uh, uh, entity to have power. Uh, which, by the way, this is the crucial mistake of idolatry. The crucial mistake of idolatry is where it accords power absolute power to something that is finite, thus uh, only has relative power. And Maimonides, he gives, I'm getting off track here, I apologize. This, if you're new here, this is what happens. We get off track. But, um, Maimonides gives us a history of idolatry. How did idolatry happen? You know, Adam ha- obviously had faith. He, maybe he, his faith was a little shaky. We could debate how powerful his faith was, but idolatry was, you know, was, was obviously very distant from Adam. How did it develop? into, you know, entire civilizations for thousands of years, bowing down to idols and bowing down to, uh, you know, to stars, etc., all the different idols of, of yesteryear. So he describes that, essentially, the intentions were noble, which is always very ironic, where the good intentions are the ones that spiral out of control. So what were the intentions? The intention was, listen, everyone realized that God was in total control over everything. However, they, they, they reasoned that, well, but God created the sun, and it's so powerful. And if we accord honor to the sun, that is a proxy for according honor to God. So, so God would want us to honor his great creations like the sun and the stars and the moon, etc. And then over some generations, people forgot that last link, and they, you know, they got off the bus one stop too early, and they said, oh, the sun is, the sun is in total control of everything. So that's the history of idolatry. But idolatry at its core is mistakenly uh, uh, assigning absolute power to something that only has relative power. Because God is the only one that has the power. 
And God always had the power, because that's the definition of God. It's not down by time. Thus, it's not like there was ever a beginning or an end. That's only to something that's finite. Okay? So God always had the power and always will have the power. What is lacking about God's dominion? What, what is out of God's control? Nothing. Well, so how do we say audaciously that we're the ones who are going to determine God's kingdom? The answer lies in the fact that, yes, while God had the total power over everything, there was no independent verification. There's no external verification. What does that mean? That means that there was nothing that could have rejected God. There was no entity, you know, even once God creates the angels and the animals, there's nothing that can reject God. Thus, at day six, some new entity is created. Something that we call B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. Some entity that has a corollary to God. Some overlap between man and God. And what is that? The fact that man and God can both make choices. That is what is so special about humanity that makes us equal to God in some, in some capacity, obviously. We have the ability to accept God or reject God. That in itself is a mind-boggling idea in that God is able to create something which is independent of him. And how, how does that work? Like, and that's a function of the free will. The free will element is something that makes us distant from God. Similar to God, but distant from God. And that is this magical fusion of body and soul that creates conflict, and therefore we're pulled to different sides. We have to make choices. But now, on day six of creation, there is an entity that could say, God, I accept you, and there's an entity that says, God, I do not accept you. That is suddenly possible. Now, what happens henceforth? Man made choices. Man, man makes choices. And the choices are either going to be choices that are going to testify to God's existence. Like we said a few weeks ago, the Shema Israel. Shema Israel is, 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 has the big eye and the big dollar. Remember we mentioned that? The two big letters? The letters are the words of, of testimony. When we say the Shema Yisrael, the Jewish declaration of faith, we are testifying to God's existence. We are acting as per our purposeful role in, in the world. That we are independently, we could opt to say, oh, I'm not interested, right? We could do that. A lot of humans do. We have the options. And we, when we say the Shema, we are doing an act of fulfilling the purpose of the world by independently, so to speak, testifying to God's existence and to God's kingdom and God's dominion over all. And that's the purpose of the world, and that's a purpose that can only be accomplished via man and man's free will. Thus, I would say a little bit more than what everyone else here said, take it a step further, that on day six, on Rosh Hashanah, it's the birthday of man. But what does that mean? It's the birthday of, it's the beginning of the purpose of the world. Either way you slice it, Right? However, however you want to look at the purpose of the world, it involves man. Thus, if it's about man achieving the pleasure that God wants to give us, well, when did that start? Rosh Hashanah. If it's about man independently testifying to the dominion of God, well, that started Rosh Hashanah as well. Thus, it's the day when we renew our purpose for the world. The, the, the world's purpose started and gets restarted every year in Rosh Hashanah. Thus, if we want to be big players in the world, if we want to be people that are going to be impactful towards achieving the goal of the world, right? 
when does that start and when can we kickstart our renewed effort to do that? On Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah is the day for personal renewal. This is for us as humans. You know, this is when we started. This is when we get restarted. This is where we have an opportunity to reinvent ourselves. This is the anniversary of God's kingdom. Every year we, we renew that as well. Before Adam, yes, God was in total dominion over all. God was in total control over all. Before Adam, of course. But something changed. That now there's Adam who can independently verify to that, uh, 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 to that reality. And that, on Rosh Hashanah, gets restarted again. By the way, and we look, when we're going to do some examination of the prayers, and we'll see how all these ideas are, are being expressed in the prayers. Now, Rosh Hashanah is called the Day of Judgment. How does judgment fit into all this? Why is it suddenly the Day of Judgment? It's just convenient, like, you know, oh, we have the renewal of man, uh, we have the renewal of God's kingdom, we have the purpose of the world, right? That's the starting point of the purpose of the world. Suddenly we have, ju- we have the Day of Judgment thrown in. Like, is it just a convenient way to get all things done at once? No, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, which is in itself is an interesting question. You have the judgment before the atonement. Doesn't it make sense to atone before you get judged? Yeah. That's a good question, right? It seems, it seems like the opposite should have happened, right? This is one of the great questions on, on the holidays is that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Yom Adin is called. And we have some, uh, we have uh, the part of the prayer that talks about that. I brought some handouts here. Uh, clearly not enough handouts, but everyone will have to share, but... Um, we'll look at a little bit about that. But why would Rosh Hashanah... No, Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. And Yom, Yom Kippur is the day of the sealing of the judgment. Uh, so, but it's the day of atonement. Would it be the recognition or the acknowledgement that um, we, we are judgmental? That we are you're saying that maybe... Maybe you're saying like this. You're saying that one of man's core qualities is judging others. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And therefore, if we're going to renew man, we're going to re- renew man with all his, his, when I say his, I mean mankind, his positive and negative qualities. And maybe you're saying that man has a capacity to judge others, and that's a very bad quality. And therefore, on this day, when humanity gets renewed, you should know you get judged because you guys judge others. Interesting. It's an interesting idea. What do you guys think? Should we vote it up or down? <laughs> you said it a lot better than mine. <laughs> no, it's very, it's, it's, I, did, I did not think about that. No, it's, it's a question. Like, let's go back. You know, like, the holidays are, are not, in, you know, Jewish holidays are not just put together haphazardly. Oh, we need a day of judgment. Let's pray. Oh, what, what day is available? You know, that's not how it works. <laughs> there has to be a reason for it. So maybe, maybe that's a reason. Is it because he judges us? on what we did negative, but even after he does that, then we have time to repent for what we've done. Well, that, that, that would be the answer to the question that uh, arose with, with, with what Debbie said, right? That, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, so maybe, that's where we started, and every year at the anniversary, we have like an analysis, you know, like, a, like, a, like your one year anniversary at your job or something like that. Your performance yeah. review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it... Go ahead. I was going to say that if we had 
ain't that better? Who needs a day of judgment if we can avoid it? Well, there's really two questions here. No, I want to hear what you have to say. But this question number one is, why is this the day of judgment? And question number two is, well, it should be the opposite. The day of atonement should be beforehand. Right? So, right? Now, those are the two questions. So you're saying if we had the day of atonement beforehand, we wouldn't have the day of judgment. But what's the benefit of the day of judgment? Is there maybe some benefit of judging even on its own? Is that beneficial? Don't be scared of me, guys. Come on, fight back. This is our first time. So we're preparing for the preparing preparing for the holiday for the high holidays, preparing for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So you're saying that in itself, the day of judgment, the day, the idea of introspection. Well, that in itself is a very valuable exercise. Yeah, but we're we're highly biased in this uh, regard. Well, clearly, but we also, in the same breath that we are acknowledging those things with which we fell short, it's also the opportunity to acknowledge those things with which we have done well. For sure. We always have opportunities for growth, but that doesn't mean that what we have done is implicitly bad. I would agree to that, of course. Why does why should everything be bad? Yeah, but no, but no, no. I like what you're saying because it is true that we ought to self-judge and self-critique and give self-analysis and self-assessment. That's very important on the holiday. But uh, we find imagery like in the Talmud. It says, and we get to, we get to a little more about this uh, as well. Uh, in the Talmud and the prayer, it says that God opens the three books. And there's the books of the righteous and the books of the wicked and the books of the in-betweens. You know, people that are 50-50. You know, and on Rosh Hashanah, and he decides who goes there and who goes there and who goes there. So... Sure, to, to not, yeah, of course, to not to with, withstand and withhold from sinning is, is one of the great mitzvahs we could do. Maybe. So Rosh Hashanah is our judge, and then we have all that time leading up to Yom Kippur in which we're supposed to be atoning for our sins, and then Yom Kippur, it is sealed. But even if God, maybe God hasn't made his final judgment, and if he has, and whatever the decision is on Yom Kippur, if there's a heaven and a hell, that still gives you, you the chance to change where you were going to someplace better by your atonement and your thoughts and maybe your actions. So it's a way to save, our, save ourselves from, uh, from a disastrous judgment. And you're saying maybe if we didn't have the judgment first... Um, like someone else mentioned, that we wouldn't know what it is uh, we need to, to work on. You know, if you, ha- if you don't have that time for self-analysis, you don't actually make an accounting of, of your life, both good and bad, of course. Uh, but if you don't make that accounting, what, it, what is it you just thrust into the Day of Atonement? You get atonement, but if you're not actually doing it on, on a granular level, 
you don't know what to repent for, and thus you don't know what to get atonement for. Yeah, but you have that chance every single day to go to bed at night. Of course. To do a review of how the day went. Of course. You know how the day went because you're feeling it right inside you. Yeah, of course. Uh, but there's also uh, there's also value to um, to having those uh, to having a specialized uh, you know season of of these kind of of of, of, um, of experiences and influences. But of I course. Think it's Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Now, uh, communal. Interesting, you mentioned that. Well, I, you know what? Let's let's hold back. I have something I want to say there. True, but are we going to be judged as a community or judged as an individual? It's interesting because we see both of those seem to be true. Uh, yes, and we get judged as an individual. And we get judged as an individual. <clears throat> and then maybe our goal is to be someone who's outstanding as an individual, but also an important cog in a community. Absolutely. And that way, we that way we're successful on both accounts. Either way, so there's there's a lot of uh, very interesting ideas that everyone shared. I want to share another one here, um, and that is look. I, mean, I think there's different angles, different perspectives on the holiday. It's a very multifaceted holiday. Uh, but one of the one of the reasons why we have judgment on Rosh Hashanah is because, remember, we said it's the birthday of mankind, so yes, there's the idea of us being judged because this is the performance review of, of our anniversary, but also it's the beginning of God's kingdom. And it's as if that every Rosh Hashanah, the God, God's kingdom gets renewed. And what happens when a new administration comes into town? What happens when there's, an, you, know, there, you know, there's right, there's the administration gets renewed. Well, what do they do? They evaluate everyone. Right? If they... Uh, the example to follow your example of, of a company, the company give performance reviews. But if there's a merger or there's an acquisition, then what's the first thing they do? They see who is expendable, right? And who you know who do you have to keep? That's obviously not no fun for us, but that that makes sense. That, that you know the, that there's a parallel to that. If Rosh Hashanah is a day where God's kingdom gets renewed, okay, then we have to evaluate, right? Every person has to be evaluated. How critical are they for the goal of the kingdom, so to speak? And how, uh, you know, how expendable are they? Who will live and who will die? Who will live and who will die, exactly. Um, thus, every year we have Day of Atonement. Now, now, what's interesting, if we take this a step further, that our judgment is going to be specifically in our capacity uh, or in, in, in our, in our uh, uh, being beneficial towards the goal of the kingdom. Which is, I may have said this before, but I just want to bring it out clearly. Our role as humans, in, in, in light of this insight as to what the purpose is, our role thus is to be positive influences on bringing about God's kingdom in the world. And thus on Rosh Hashanah, we're judged on that point. How much of an asset were you towards this ultimate goal of making God's kingdom known to everyone? And how much were you a liability? And this, should, this dovetails very nicely with our discussions we've had here previously about the idea of tikkun olam, fixing the world. The world's broken. What's broken about the world? The world is broken by design. Well, why would God deliver, deliver us a flawed world? The answer is because that's, that's the purpose. The purpose is we have a flawed world. The idea of God is not present and known to all. And then our job is to expose that, to expose the kingdom of God, to bring out the kingdom of God. 
to disseminate the idea of God to the world. Well, if that's the purpose of, of the world, in, 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 you know, to fix the world, and Rosh Hashanah is the day where we get our performance of you, how effective were you about spreading God's word? Now, that means personally, but also means communally. Like, your actions, like when you do a mitzvah, any mitzvah someone does, any mitzvah, doesn't matter what the mitzvah is, any mitzvah is an example of someone demonstrating God has control. Why? Because a mitzvah is an instruction you got from God. And if a mitzvah is an instruction you got from God, you're doing it because God told you to do it. Well, what are you demonstrating? You're bringing the idea of God into the world. You're, mani- manifest- ma- ma- you're manifesting the idea of God in the world. You're embodying that idea. Every mitzvah, thus, is an expression of demonstration of God's kingdom to the world. So I said there's a personal, there's a communal uh, aspect to it as well, of course. Um, when I see another person swim off me, it encourages me to, to have this demonstration. Which, which is interesting, but when we think about this, we zoom out a little bit, every single mitzvah that we do right, is essentially at its core expressing the same function. And, that, and, and think about how this augments our perspective on what the power of a mitzvah is. We think of a mitzvah as an isolated act of goodness. That's what we think of it. When in reality, it's part of bringing the world to its ultimate perfection. That, like, that should really expand our, 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 our perspective on what the power of a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is a, a human acting upon God's will. Which, by the way, I want to bring this to another point that we have mentioned here in the past. When someone does kindness... Kindness, you, you, whatever you give, you give someone a ride, or uh, you say you call up someone who's sick and you say, I wish them well, whatever the kindness may be. Someone could do that for multiple reasons. You could do that because you're a good person, or you could do that because God wants you to do it. Now, you may think that which one, which one of them is better. You may think that. Well, both of them are really good, right? But you, someone may argue, Betty, that well, no, it's better to do it out of your own, you know, not you know, your own well, initiative. Everything is to be to the glory of Hashem. That's that, true, but I'm saying people might 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 have this misconception that well, if I do it because Hashem wants, well, that's you know, that's 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 for Hashem. What about for me? You know, I want to do it because I'm a good person. And people might think that that's, that's a higher motivation, but really, it isn't, right? When you do a good act, it's a good act, of course. You bring goodness to the world. But you could also couple that with the fact that you're exposing God's kingdom to the world. Right? It, it, what I'm saying is it, it, it amplifies the power of every mitzvah. Every mitzvah is an expression of bringing God to the world. But sometimes, like I saw somebody that today, we had a Facebook, okay, before coming, someone asked for prayer. You know, there was an explanation of what was going on in that individual's life. It said, could you please pray for me or something like that or give me any prayers or thoughts. Well, I wrote back in a personal message and I said, so-and-so, I said, I don't know what's going on in your life. However, I can provide some help. Here's my phone number. And then <coughs> I acknowledged the request, not publicly on a page or anything, but individually, I guess I did it because I felt it was the right thing. I do know the people a little bit. So I didn't do it for God's glory. I did it for my own personal satisfaction that I extended a hand. 
And, and that's wonderful. And, and part and when we spoke about kindness, if you remember, we have a class here. It's on the website, rabbiwolbe.com, if you want to read about it. R-A-B-B-I-W-O-L-B-E dot com. <laughs> Take time to write that down, guys. <laughs> R-A-B-B-I-W-O-L-B-E. <laughs> uh, so we gave a class here about the four kinds of kindness. And the idea being that, yes, we could do kindness, and the same, ki- the same act of kindness can be for different motivations. We could elevate the kindness to be, and the highest level of kindness is where I'm not doing it to be a good person. Well, it doesn't sound good, right? right? Of course you want to be a good person, but a much higher level is you're doing it for God, because then it's not just about man-to-man and this minor interaction you're going to have with another human. That's important as well, of course. But you're actually influencing the entire universe, so you think about this. You say, listen, I am doing this mitzvah because the Almighty wants me to do it. Right. And, and, and sometimes you have, sometimes you feel a natural emotional mm-hmm. drive to help someone. Right. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you kind of stunt that. You're like, no, oh, I'm doing this for God. And it, it's at that, that's why it's not easy. You know? not, not, not to try to get rid of that emotion. I'm saying to channel that emotion, to say I'm doing this feeling for someone. I'm, I'm having this experience with someone else because God wants me to to have that, this experience. Well, it's a little bit unnatural, I'm saying. It is a little bit unnatural. Huh? Interpretation. Right, but it's an unnatural interpretation. What about the intent? Yeah, the, the, for the intent, that's what we're talking about. What about that lady in, I don't know, I think Kentucky, who won't give the marriage licenses to same-sex couples? Or anyone, from what I heard. Because she <clears throat> said God, it's God telling her to do it. I, I mean, well, is that what she's saying, that God told her? Yeah, she yeah. said that. No, yeah, she well, said then God she's. Told her. Oh, God told her. Who, yeah, who that? told you to do that? And she's on, you know, on TV and said, it's, you know, God telling her. Apparently, this woman mm-hmm. also has had like four marriages and some yes. of them overlapped. <laughs> Whatever. No, I'm not, I'm not I'm serious. But either way, I, I listen, I understand someone having um, reservations about same sex marriages. Like, we know that the Torah <laughs> is not necessarily in favor of that. Um, clearly, uh, but maybe you should get a different job. You know, if your job mandates that you give right. same-sex marriages, you, you go do other things. So it looks like she would fit right into. Uh, but, but my point Walmart was that cashier. so many people have the idea of this is this is what God wants. It's not always. You know, it's your interpretation of what God wants. Well, well, she may be right. Let's assume she is right. So what, right? You know, that's if it's illegal, God doesn't say you have to be a, a county registrar or whatever she is. Whatever. There's no mitzvah like that in the Torah, anyone, right? Not, not any variant of the Bible you want to have. So God's not forcing you to be a county clerk and not give marriage licenses. Whatever. She also took an oath. Yeah, well, she could resign, I'm sure. But we're talking about her, so she wins. <laughs> okay, so so that's I think I think an incredible insight that via our actions via our act- actions we can really change and influence the uh, the expanse of God's kingdom. I think it's a pretty crazy idea. Now we mentioned that there's three books, so, so we have judgment. I think have judgment. Uh, and we're told that uh, there are three books that are opened 
the butts of the wicked, the butts of the righteous, and the butts of those in between. Now, the way, how, how does it work to be? How do you, how do you become an in-betweener? Like, uh, someone mentioned that we're, most of us are in-between. Now, I'm fine with that. Yeah, but I, I would think that most people are either one or the other, either righteous. Like, what, I, what I would do, if it was me running the show, I would say, okay, let's count someone's sins or missing the marks versus someone's mitzvahs. Which one has, has more? Then if you have more sins, then you're wicked. If you have more mitzvahs, then you're righteous. And mazel tov. How many people over an entire year have the exact same number they're in between? And in fact, we're told, the Talmud says, that those that are righteous... Well, they right away get stamped Amr Shoshana for a good life. Those that are wicked, right away get stamped for 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 uh, for death. Well, what that means is is a good question. We'll hold on hold on to that question. And those that are in between, well, then they have they they then they're 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 put in limbo to to Yom Kippur. That's what the Talmud so, says. So is it saying that the righteous? So I was defining righteous as a they they never succumb to their yetsarah, their boys. You're saying it's just the majority? That's what I would say. I would say, listen, everyone, you know, there's no, it's not possible to be righteous and never sin. That's, a, that's too much. In fact, there's a verse that says, Well, if you ask forgiveness every like, night, what? There's comparison. no righteous pur- purpose in the world that does good and does not sin. Right. It's a verse in Scripture. You would think that would be a great example of someone who's entirely wicked. Yeah. That's a very good question. Yeah, well, young children, I want to hold off on the question because that, that could. That's another thing. Yeah, we yeah, but we have spoken about that. I'm not trying to avoid that question. Back to the website. <laughs> um, so, that's a good question. So, let's hold off on that question for a second. Uh, I'm not going to try to avoid it. You guys know me well enough. I don't try to avoid controversial questions. Um, but now there's a website that you can... <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to offload you guys there. Um, so, perhaps this is a, a, a nice insight that my grandfather wrote in one of his books. And that is that idea, what does it mean righteous and what does it mean wicked with regards to Rosh Hashanah? A righteous activity in the Rosh Hashanah sense is an activity that demonstrates that God exists. And thus, uh, a sinful or missing the mark activity is when someone forgets that I- ideal. And someone, you know, doesn't see that, you know, doesn't have that same sensitivity. Most of us are in-betweeners. Because almost none of us, we can say that every single action is one that's dominated by one or the other. <clears throat> thus, most of us have this point. It's not just about the accumulation of sins. It's about who is in control of, of your world. Is it God? Well, is it God entirely? Do you have some sort of reverence for what we would call the, the other God? Well, what would be the other God? That would be your Yetzirah, by the way. It's amazing. We find so many sources in, um, in Jewish writings about the Yetzirah being this force that controls us and has yeah, personality, our actions, our thoughts, our, our values, our, our priorities, priorities, everything. But we give it control. 
Well, it, we, 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 we start off at a disadvantage. God kind of is, he, pro, yeah, he means it's a, power, it's a relative power that God does by design because otherwise there'd be no purpose in the world. But any time that we do an activity because we are under the spell or the dominion of our Yetzirah, of our evil inclination, well then suddenly there's some other deity, so to, so to speak, here in control of our lives. There's some other power that we, you know, that we kneel before. Well, 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 which one is it? Is it, is it? If it's both, well, we have to decide. Yom Kippur is the day we decide. And we have the prayers. It's amazing. We say that uh, on, on, on Rosh Hashanah we, we pray that the wicked kingdom should be, you know, should be uh, swiftly eradicated. Well, are we referring to the Soviet Union here? Well, which, which evil empire are we referring to? Well, it's, a, it's an internal evil empire that we have within ourselves. And our life is this struggle between our dedication that we want to have for God, yet our almost magnetic attraction or submission that we have to our Yetzirah. And these two powers, one the absolute power of God and one the relative power of our Yetzirah, are the two two powers that we have to struggle between. And Rosh Hashanah is the day where we attest that God is the only power. And we pray for the swift destruction of the other power. But most of us are in-betweeners. Now, that being said, to, to, to answer your question about Hitler, it's a, it's a good question. We, well, what about the people that are entirely evil? You know, why don't they just die every Rosh Hashanah? We should have, like, a, you know, the obituaries of, you know, go ahead. But is that, is that, uh, wouldn't that be the same as somebody entirely good? You really can't have anybody that is entirely evil. Yeah, okay. Maybe that's, that's maybe a good answer. Um, and also, that model of having people just die on Rosh Hashanah, like, that model is clearly not the model the Torah, the Torah wants, because remember, what happens when that happens? What happens when every person that you think is not on the up and up dies every, every Rosh Hashanah? All the evil people in the world die. You would get rid of free will. You wouldn't have free will, exactly. Yeah. Uh, because then, you know, it's, 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 you know it's, it, that model can, cannot really exist. And, and by, that's why the commentators talk about life and death here being much more than just are you breathing as your heart pumping? Are you consuming oxygen? It's much more than that. It's life. Well, what does life really mean? You know, what does death really mean? In the Torah's, the Torah's viewpoint, not the way we define it. How does the Torah define life and death? What does life mean? Life means purpose. Was this year, 2015, right? Or 5776 in the Jewish calendar since Adam. 5775. Thank you. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> was this year a year of life for me? Was I a positively influenced on the purpose of the world or negatively influenced? How does this year accrue towards my role in the universe? You're talking about a more uplifting way of looking at Oh, yeah. But remember, like, you, we, whenever we're using the Torah's uh, uh, terminology, we have to understand what is the Torah. We cannot translate it into our terminology, you know. And, I, and I'm, I'm not to try to say that we that, that, that your Rosh is not more than that, but I mean, I would say it's not more as in um, what happens to our mortal body as well. I think that's also the Rosh Hashanah, but that's not really what the judgment's about. Remember, what's the judgment about? The judgment about is us as humans and our role as humans in our capacity to fulfill the purpose of the world. That's really what it's about. 
that's what we're, we're, we're being judged as to how good are we in um, upholding or uh, uh, demonstrating or disseminating, proliferating God's kingdom. That's what we're being judged upon. Thus, if we're successful, then we have been a positive influence to the world this past year. We have a year of life. And unfortunately, if, we're, if we weren't successful, we have a year of death. Does that mean that we're going to die right away? Of course not. But then when we're atoning and thinking over our sins, we don't know what we've done or should do that would fulfill God's purpose in the world. If, if not we God's say, purpose. If we're saying God's what do you mean? purpose. You mean God's purpose as in? Yes. What, what would let us live another year? Because if we're saying, okay, maybe the Hitler has done something or is doing something that's leading towards God's purpose then how do we know what we're doing or not doing is going to that purpose so I, I think that there's um, I think there's, there's, a, there's a good question and, and, and I think this, this multifaceted question because you're essentially asking um, that there, you know, I would say that there's maybe the purpose as in the ultimate goal and the purpose as in the path we take to get there. That's might be a little confusing. You're saying, well, did God want Hitler to, to do what he did? Well, yeah. Right? God is the ultimate power. That's obviously a hard thing to say. Yeah. You know, but maybe Hitler's the bigger, he, he did the mitzvah, right? No, he didn't. Of course not. Uh, God allowed him to do it. And that's a good question we have to ask. Why would God allow that to happen? It's a very good question. It's one of the best questions we could ask uh, in Jewish philosophy in contemporary times. Um, but it seems that God allowed an act or a, a series of acts that are against, so to speak, what, what the ultimate purpose is. And you have to be a real, uh, somewhat real visionary to understand how this all fits in. And most, most of us, or maybe even all of us, at least uh, in the time, can't really sense that. Um, so I think it's a complicated question, but I, I. But we're also judged as individuals as well, and our actions as individuals. And if you do actions that are uh, despicable actions, then you can't say, "Well, God allowed me to do that," and th even this contributes towards the ultimate purpose, and therefore, um, I'm good. No, you're judged as, as as what your actions were. Now, uh, to just to just expand the discussion here, just to see how, how this really fits in, uh, um, what's being mentioned here is the idea that our actions, both good and bad, ultimately end up at the same destination. Which means like this: at the end of the line, it's a little bit of a radical idea. So, if it sounds if it sounds if it sounds crazy, it's because it's 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 dramatic. What is the what is the end game? What's going to happen at the end? At the end, God's kingdom is going to be known to all. That's for sure. How we get there is essentially in our heads. So um, the argument goes, and even though it sounds sacrilegious and evil, what I'm about to say, but our argument goes is that even a holocaust ultimately contributes towards the end goal. How that works is, is a mystery, of course. But good and bad things uh, that happen and transpire are all going to bring about towards this end. And, uh, and I'll just link it to uh, a source, and that is the famous Talmud that says that the, the idea of Messiah, right? Messiah is, is how the Jews define 
the end, um, the end wherein everyone, the, the idea of God becomes universal and ubiquitous. That's what the word Messiah means. Um, as in uh, the philosophy of Messiah, not the individual of the Messiah. Um, so the Talmud says the Messiah could come in a generation that's entirely wicked or entirely righteous. Now what does wicked and righteous mean? We just talked about that. What does wicked mean? Wicked means where the Jewish people are not teaching the world about God either personally via their actions or via their influences and their interactions. And righteous means that we are. Both rows, both approaches lead to the same end. God will be known to all. God will be known to all either because of us or despite of us, either in the best of circumstances or the worst of circumstances. But the individual that does evil, which in the big picture actually brings about God's dissemination, that's not, that, 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 that's not, uh, that, you know, that, that's, he gets judged uh, on his own accord. If God is finding mysterious ways, that sounds bad, if God is finding unconventional ways, what we consider unconventional ways, or uh, distasteful ways, maybe, uh, to bring about the ultimate goal, well, that's God's decision. That doesn't mean that my actions are righteous actions. My actions are wicked actions, but those wicked actions bring to the ultimate goal. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, even though wicked actions can bring about the ultimate goal of purpose, it's still wicked actions, and therefore it gets put in the book of the wicked. Of course, that's that's that, those end points. Uh, if we didn't have this dynamic, we wouldn't have any free will. Yes. I read um, years ago um, an analogy that if you take a, a Persian rug mm-hmm. and um, lift it up, okay, Hashem sees the, the top part, which is all beautifully woven and everything, and we look underneath and we see all the knots and all. We don't understand what He's really making out of us. And to me, that makes sense. Mm, that's very clever um, because our perspective is very narrow. And that's, I'm saying that's, anytime we talk about why bad things happen to good people, that has to be part of the discussion because, you know, our vision, if you don't know what's going on, you don't have the perspective, of course you, you know, at, that's why it's a lot easier to work backwards. You know, to, uh, maybe this has happened to other people, it has happened to me certainly, uh, when something happens in your life and you're sure this is terrible, and then later, maybe a week later, maybe five years later, you realize how was the best thing. And you didn't know at the time because you didn't have the same perspective you have now looking back in hindsight. Has that happened to anyone here? Well, okay. So then if you just expand that to a bigger scale, and you talk about even national tragedies like the destruction of the Second Temple, which is one of the worst things that ever happened to us, um, and the things leading up and the things that came afterwards, um, I think for sure rivals the Holocaust in, in its scope and its intensity and its devastation. But in hindsight... We kind of, you know, and it's a good, it's always a good, it's, by the way, it's always a good example to do that because you have a little bit of sobriety of 2,000 years to kind of have more perspective. You know, I even, even, I'm, I'm talking here, but the Holocaust is still so fresh. You know, my family and, uh, and the people that I know, you know, my grandmother, she's, she's 90 years old, but she went through the camps and she's still around, both grandmothers. You know, so it's kind of hard to really have the same uh, perspective that you would have about talking about what happened 2,000 years ago. 
Um, so it's always a good it's always good to try to you know uh, uh, try to um, de-escalate the emotions when talking about this thing. But you know that that's the first thing we have to do is realize is that you know there's a much bigger picture. And you know, and that, but that fundamental thing is—it's a little bit hard to stomach because we're essentially telling us is that we can't really know. That's that's that, that's disheartening and we people like to hear. And and it's mm-hmm. but it also sounds like we're copying out. We're really not, but it sounds like it. It feels like it. Go ahead. It's there, and it's it's a it's a very hard concept to understand because it kind of flies in the face of the idea of individual providence or hashtacha pratit, which means that God treats every individual as an individual. But there are some instances where God would treat people collectively, um, which is yeah, as I said, it's a little bit of a contradiction. Um, uh, for example, there's a there's a, a Talmud that talks about this. Uh, it's in the book of Shabbos 55a, and it says that uh, for whatever reason there was a, a plague, and God tells the angels, so to speak, well, make sure that you put a mark, a black mark, on the forehead of all the righteous people so you don't attack those people in the plague. He says, well, why them? Well, they're righteous. Just attack the wicked. So then, well, uh, the, the angel says, well, what about the righteous? They didn't influence the wicked to not sin. So I said, okay, you know what? Change the black spot to a red spot and then go after the righteous first. Okay, so that's what the Talmud says. Obviously, there's a lot going on beneath the surface here. And I think it's, uh, maybe we should have a discussion on collective punishment, look at all the sources, because there are some sources uh, on this issue. But either way, this demonstrates that not only can the righteous be swept away with the wicked, but they have the red spot and they get taken away first. You know, maybe the righteous have more responsibility, thus their inaction, not, not just their evil, but their inaction is also an, an act of evil, and thus they are swept away with everyone else. Um, so this idea of collective punishment, or even collective reward, which we see in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, uh, I've mentioned this before, uh, the importance of being part of the group on Yom Kippur, not being judged as an individual, uh, is, is important, because as a Jewish nation, we are promised. God promises us we will survive. We will be an eternal nation. Thus, if you're able to link yourself or latch yourself onto this entity that's the nation, well then even though individually, um, personally, on the basis of your own merits, you don't really deserve to be put in this book of life, so to speak. But because you're being judged collectively and you're able to find some way to latch upon you know, the Jewish nation, you know, this train, so to speak, of the Jewish nation, and that nation is for sure going to be ushered towards the book of life. And no matter what happens to us, we're impervious. And we know that we're impervious because God tells us we're impervious. 
and history shows us now it's very easy to say that. But in every single century, uh, for the past 3,000 years, there have been efforts and influences that any historian uh, would say typically bring the downfall and the, uh, the disillusion of uh, uh, the dissolvement of a people. Yet we survive, you know. Uh, because the Torah says we will survive. So if we're able to be part of the nation at large, we're going to be have a very favorable judgment. By the way, one of the things we try to do before Shoshana is to make ourselves a greater asset to the community. If you're an asset to the community, then you're someone who's part of this proverbial train of the Jewish people, then the Jewish people are certainly going to emerge righteous in, in, in judgment, for sure. The Jewish people will not be destroyed in 5776, no matter what, no matter, no matter how many bombs the Iranians get and whatever. No matter how much terrible things happen, the Jewish people are guaranteed to survive 5776. I guarantee it. Or money back. Huh? Yeah, and, and the, Torah, the, the Torah gives the promise, and the promise has upheld, and it's upheld against the greatest odds. Uh, no matter how much, no, you look at the history of anti-Semitism, it's outrageous how much anti-Semitism there's been and how many efforts there were to destroy the Jewish people. It's outrageous. Now, we're always a small number, we're always feeble, and we always survive. A remnant. Yeah, always, 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 always. Not a remnant, <laughs> a nation, a small nation. A small nation. We are now about uh, roughly like twice the size of the, of, the, of the amount of people that we were in the times of, uh, well, a little bit less than twice the size. Uh, you know, in the Roman times. If you were able to go back 2,000 years ago, right, we were, the Jews were about, you know, 5, 6 million people. The Chinese were also about 5, 6 million people. And now we're about 15, you know, 15. It's, you know, the growth uh, uh, in, uh, in dance business, that would be terrible. <laughs> you know, that's terrible growth. It's a, you're losing out against inflation. <laughs> you know, the Chinese, look at them. You know, they're billions upon billions of people. Does that take into consideration individuals who are of Jewish descent and for years did not know it? Yeah, well, so we lose people because of anti-Semitism, because of, you know, the Moranos or Conversos uh, of, of Spain. Uh, a lot of them are coming out of the woodwork nowadays. Uh, we lose them to minor instances of... Uh, of assimilation, even though not so much. Uh, recently, since the past, past 200 years, we see an uptick in that. But historically, it's been very little of that. Uh, we see exile, we expulsion. All those things contribute towards suppressing the vitality of a nation. Um, so it's a lot of things. It's, 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 it's people, like you said, a lot of, the, a lot of, the, a lot of Jews have um, lived these double lives. Uh, it's, of course, and that's coming back a lot. Very, very... And very big numbers is coming back nowadays, which is very interesting. It's never, it's never been like that. Uh, Jews that uh, have a claim towards Jewish ancestry, but they have hundreds of years of gaps that they have no idea why their mothers always lit candles on Friday night. They have no idea why, but they always did it. And you know, so it's a very, light, very high likelihood that these are the same people that, uh, you know, in Portugal or in in Spain, three, four hundred years ago, um, were, were called Moranos or Conversos. Uh, sure, always. Well, what you were just saying reminds me of something else I read years ago. I don't know if you were aware. Is you know, like a, a sidewalk, everything gets covered in concrete, and then maybe 10, 15 years later, you see a crack, and then you see little sprouts coming through. It's like against all odds. How could the seeds push 
circumstances and grow. And I think that's how people are. Mm -hmm. Res resilient. Very, very resilient. Especially the Jewish people. Yes. Because, exactly. you know, we see in history so many powerful nations and empires that are gone. I know this is like a little bit of cliche, like this is, you know, we've, heard, we've heard this before, but it's still remarkable, you know. So do you not get, when you read the new current events, the rhetoric coming out of Iran, all that stuff, do you just like not even respond to that? Like my, emotion? Uh, my prediction, okay, and this is in 2015, what's today's date? September 5th, something mm -hmm. like that? 6th. 6th, okay. I think the Iranians will get the bomb. I think it's pretty clear that they will get the bomb. Um, I don't think they will ever use it. Um, and I think it's going to influence, obviously, the leverage that is Israel has in the region. You know, that's very important. We don't think about it that's so important, but geopolitically, it's very important. Um, you know, if you're the only one in the region that has a bomb, you have a certain muscle that you could uh, that you could exercise. Um, uh, so that's my prediction. But I'm not worried at all, at all, about any nuclear holocaust, at all. Especially because the Israelis have the bomb also. Why would they do that? It's insane. Oh, everyone's going to have the bomb, and you know what? Ironically, the most peaceful time we've ever had has been since 19, the 1940s. Um, less people are dying in, in, in conflict of war today than at any other point in history. Well, we have, I guess we have something, stuff, all this stuff going on in Africa, and now, of course, we're going on in Syria. But it's still, compared to, you know, historically, the fact that uh, 75 million people died in World War II, we have nowhere near those kinds of numbers. In World War One and every every... Every century has major conflicts and ongoing conflicts. It's a pretty much a conflict-free world. And I think that, ironically, nuclear arms, the threat of, of that does bring peace, which is weird. Man. Because, huh? Man. Mutual assured destruction. Mutual assured, yeah, mutual, mutual assured destruction. And even if it's not mutual assured destruction, even if uh, the players involved, think about it this way. If in 1914 there were nuclear powers involved in, you know, in the brouhaha, in the, in, you know, the, in, in the disaster uh, that brought about so much destruction with so little to be gained, would there really be this just battle, this non-progressive -pro battle that just slaughtered millions upon millions? I don't think so. Why? Because there's this two nuclear powers cannot have a war because then there's no way there's, there's no way to actually have a war unless they have like an arm wrestle like there's no way to do it there's no way to have to scale up war when you, everyone has this 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 weaponry because if there's a real war you'll use your weaponry yes but that predisposes sanity on all sides and It's also true. Well, I, I think that there's. Absolutely. Totally impoverished. But it's true. Destroyed, it's true. It's just. Uh, of us the world. No, no, it's, it's not going to. It's not going to destroy. 
It's not going to get destroyed. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's, there's one like geopolitical argument to be made that Israel is destroyed. There's also the, the spiritual argument to be made. And in fact, we have Jewish sources that talk about the limitation of evil. Evil does not have the control to change the arena. So yes, in the arena of the world, evil has a place and it has a voice, at least for a limited time. However, it cannot destroy the world because it cannot. It doesn't have. Only God can decide whether or not the time has come for the world to be, I don't know, to be uh, refurbished or you know restarted. We have we. That's not in, in man's hand. And by the way, when we talk about the sanity on, on both sides. I don't think people are going to be. Uh, people are not going to act in a way that is harmful to them. That's one of the basic rules. Of, of humankind, and that is a very good thing, uh, with regards to such, you know, such destructive weaponry. I hope you're right. That's what I told you. <laughs> okay. I've, I've learned in this memoir, I've read it, that even evil has to report to Hashem as to what they've done, or what their limitations are. What their that's right. Okay, so let's move on here. I don't want to. So we find a description, a description of the judgment on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and the Mishnah says in the book of Rosh Hashanah, which by the way talks about Rosh Hashanah, this entire book dedicated to our subject. It's called Rosh Hashanah, ironically. And the book describes judgment as people passing before God, Kivnei Maron, like the sons of Maron. What does that mean? So the Talmud gives us three explanations of what that means. Either like sheep being counted. If you want to count your sheep, you put them in a pen, and then you open the door which allows passage for only one sheep to exit. And you count one at, one at a time. Or like soldiers being counted on the way to war. Or like two people. We have people passing by on a very narrow road. Only one person can pass by single file. That's what the Talmud says. Three explanations of what this B'nai Maro means. Either way, either explanation, the, same, the point is the same, and that is we're judged as an individual under Rosh Hashanah. And I think that this is maybe a little bit disturbing to hear, but when we self-analyze, when we self-critique, we have the capacity to blame others, to blame circumstances. It always makes us feel bad. Yes. And in Rosh we're told that who is being judged? Only us. At the point of judgment of Rosh Hashanah, it's just us. We have no one. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame our spouses. We can't blame our bosses. We can't blame the environment, the circumstances, anything. It's just us, and God judges us as if nothing else exists. Uh, now, of course, if we get judged to such a degree beforehand, we want to have this introspection. We want to be ready for the judgment. We want to imagine we have a court case, and we're being judged, and the stakes are higher than we could ever imagine. Would we not do our due diligence? We, would we not inspect the evidence? Would we not try to, you know, try to uh, um, be as prepared as possible? And that's what someone mentioned. The, the month of Elul is the month where we prepare, where we have this introspection, this analysis. Now, this is not, not easy at all. The hardest probably exercise, probably the hardest exercise someone could do is to fairly judge themselves. Right? We are so biased 
in our desire to, you know, to, 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 you know, to, uh, to justify ourselves, that we're going to have a very time to impartially analyze our actions and our humanity. And I once, uh, my theory on this is like this, you know, I don't, I don't know if, maybe this is something that only happens to me, but have you ever liked listened to a recording of your own voice? Mm-hmm. Yeah? And like you, don't like it. you don't like it, why not? <laughs> because it doesn't sound good. Because it's true. It's, it's telling you, you yeah. exactly what, it's showing you exactly what you sound like. Yeah, but it's so bizarre. Like, I don't know if you, like, you leave a voicemail. I recently, uh, a week ago, uh, one of my students is he's laning, he's reading from the Torah. So he's practicing. He only has he's, well, his grandson's getting married, he's getting bar mitzvah, and he offered, they asked him if he wants to, to, to lane, to read from the Torah, seven verses. Not so many verses, right? But it's not, it's not the easiest verses. It's in Hazinus and a few words parsha. So it's, it's, like, it's like poetry, it's very hard words to pronounce, plus all the cantillations and how you say it, right? So I recorded it on my phone. I said, okay, I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll play it, I'll send it to you on the phone, right? Then you can listen to it a thousand times and memorize it. So I do it on the phone, and then he's like, okay, let me play it. He starts playing it out loud. I'm like, ah, stop it, (laughs) you know? Uh, And it seems like this is a, is anyone here very, very comfortable with their own voice? No. No one? You thought it was just you, right? But apparently it's no one, right? So I I remember when I used to start recording my classes, which, by the way, are available on the website. Thank you. Uh, when I first started doing that, and I would listen to the classes, and it would be like, it's like, it, it's 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 so disheartening. It's so it's like fingernails scratching a chalkboard. It's like you don't want to listen to it. Uh, but over time, it kind of like I listen to all my classes now, and I, I guess I got used to it maybe. But my question is, why? Like, why are we so disturbed? What's so traumatic about your own voice? And when you hear your voice, you know it's your own voice. And when you talk, you know that you're emitting sounds, right? We know that. And we know people hear that. And all the sounds that we ever make are sounds that we make. You're just not used to seeing or hearing yourself from an outside perspective. That's exactly right. That's my theory. I think is that we're terrified of analyzing ourselves. Because when you hear your own voice, you hear it as an outsider. Suddenly you're not partial. Right? You cannot... You cannot, you know, give your own justification, your internal justifications that we always do. And that is something that we're so disturbed by. And now in Rosh Hashanah, we're going to ask ourselves, you know what? Let's analyze ourselves. Not only our voice, which is, I mean, you know, what's what, you know, that's the voice. It doesn't really matter, you know. And then we want to analyze our actions and our thoughts and our deeds and our treatment of others and our, uh, you know, our seriousness that we're taking life. Are we going to be impartial to that? Is this going to be easy? Are we, are we going to be able to really analyze ourselves? If we have a hard time listening to our own voice, imagine <laughs> if we're able to replay our own actions or our own thoughts externally, so to speak. They come out with some technology to do that. Have a body cam on everybody that looks at everybody else. But not only that, but it, it's able to dig deep into our motivations. You know, when you see someone else doing something righteous... You could very much analyze and say, yeah, they're doing it because they want the honor. You know, we, we, could, we could do that to other people. And if you were able to do it to yourself, I think you would go nuts. Right? Because it's, it's, it's hearing your voice, but it's not only that, it's hearing your internal voice. You know, and really 
unbiasedly, what's the word, or bias freely, uh, impartially really analyze yourself, that's what we're demanded to do in Rosh Hashanah. This is the hardest thing. That's a, that's a very, very beneficial response. Yeah, and I, I, I've added that. that but so, I, you not ahead. all the time. But, but do you say like, yeah, but they did it because, you know, it's very easy to record, you know, uh, uh, ulterior motives to other people's actions. Yeah, I was going to say it's, you know, whenever I look, look at, you know, like over the last year, my default is just to remember everything I did that was great. You know? <laughs> so every negative thing I may have said to someone or hurt their, you know, yeah. or lost my temper with my daughter, that, it's, it's hard to pull that into the, uh, the forefront. And maybe, maybe that's just a healthy mechanism that God, you know, otherwise maybe we'd be depressed otherwise. You know, or maybe it's just our, our defenses against this critical analysis that's so important. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, maybe there's an element of both. But clearly, Rosh Hashanah is a time or the, the season where we have to try to open up this very uncomfortable part of ourselves. But Rabbi Wolby, if we do it every day, every night, maybe it makes it easier. And you guys come Shema or whenever we do it, then it should make it easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we, but we, it still hurts. Still yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the question is, 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 is it um, all told? Is it better to have a little kind of pain, but that's going to improve your life dramatically? You know, there's um, Lutzato, right? Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, one of the great, great uh, Jewish personalities in the past 500 years. Uh, someone who, by the way, whose accomplishments are so dramatic and so far-reaching and so impactful, so world-changing, and whose books are so dr- just out there in, in accomplishment, scope of accomplishment, Yet he died when he was 39, which in itself is just mind-boggling. You know, he's one of the uh, great heroes of, uh, of the past 500 years of Jewish history. Either way, he has this really short book uh, called Derech Eitz Chaim. It was printed as a supplement to his most famous book, way, uh, "The Way of the Upright" or "Path of the Just," Mesilat Hisharim. Uh, and in it, he writes something which, if you read it today, it sounds insane, you know. And he says, he says that the most valuable exercise or activity someone could possibly do in their lives is self-analysis. Cheshbon nefesh it's called in, 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 Jewish, in Jewish terminology, right? which means uh, assessing your, your life. And he gives examples. He says, what should you do? You should say, ask questions. Well, which question you should ask questions yourself? Who am I? That sounds like a pretty open-ended question. <laughs> or, what did King David do to make God love him so much? It's like two examples he gives to the questions. And he says, you should spend a minimum of an hour a day doing this. And not only that, he says, this is the best thing to possibly do in your life. And I would say it's the best thing, and uh, the law of, uh, of 
of, of, of spiritual realities makes that it's probably the hardest thing to do as well. But either way, he says this, more than anything else, right, will have a positive in, in, in influence on your life. And he used to do an hour a day to me, like an hour a day. An hour a day. Can you imagine? Like a minimum, he says, a minimum of an hour a day. You know? Huh? Yeah, Hitbodedut uh, would be a variant of that. Hitbodedut means seclusion um, in, in Hebrew. And what it means in, in the context that you're mentioning doesn't mean going to the elevator. It means to be with yourself and to, uh, you know, to try to in, do introspection. Um, but I want to point out this is maybe the most impactful thing. This is the holiday to do it, but it's also very hard to do it. And I want to talk about how we can make it easier. How do we make this e- easier, and how, how does the prayers make it easier for us? If this, is the, if this is the activity we have to do in Rosh Hashanah, well, how do we go about doing it, and how do we make it easier for us? Uh, so uh, I, just one thing I want to point out, throw out there, is that in Rosh Hashanah we talk a lot about death. Who will live and who will die? The books of the, of the living and the books of the dead, right? Three books that are open. Uh, and those kind of, uh, of of sentiments, of thoughts, of living and dying, those are very, very powerful tools that we can use to make this process of hit bodhidut or self-introspection easier. Why? In life, we are corrupted, so to speak, by our desire to justify ourselves by our desire to make our life not, uh, to, to not discard the value of our life. When if I were to do a self-analysis of my life and find out that I'm a total miserable failure, how do I live afterward? How do I live? How, do I, how can I disregard my whole life till now? It's a very hard thing to do. If I'm on my deathbed, theoretically, or even the proverbial deathbed, if I think about that, right, then it's much easier to present my life in a more true fashion, a more, a more more unbiased fashion. So, you know, if you're able to think about your, you know, they, we always know about this, like the guy on the deathbed, and he has all his regrets. That, that, that's the, you know, that, that's the, that's the sentiment that we've heard before. You know, the, the deathbed, why, why are you regretting things on your deathbed when you have no, no opportunity to change it? You know why? Because then it's easier. You don't have any skin, skin in the game, so to speak. Becomes much much easier when you say, "Okay, I have nothing left to live for," right? Okay, now it can only reflect backwards. Now the regrets come in. If I had those, think about that. If you knew you're going to have deathbed regrets, isn't it better to address it now when you still have opportunity to change it? The answer is yes. It's much better, but it's much harder. Because if I have my regrets now, well, that's going to propel me to have to change myself and to have to really critically analyze myself for the rest of my life. And who wants to do that? It's very painful. And in Rosh Hashanah, we talk about death so much to try to conjure the feeling of, of the limit of our lives and the inevitable demise that we're going to all face to try to spur us to challenge ourselves even now. So when you read about, in the prayer, in the liturgy of on Rosh Hashanah, several times you reference the idea of death. And even, you know, remember us for life, you know. Zuchain al-Chaim, the God who desires life. 
and write us in the book of life. Like all that that we say many, many, many times, not just death, but you know, that we're hoping for life. What is that? What influence is that going to leave? You know, what kind of experience are we going to have when we really think about the fact that we're going to all die? Maybe that will propel us or compel us or will be a positive impetus for us to actually go about this process of cheshbon and nefesh, of self-analysis and self-critique on Rosh Hashanah to make it a little bit easier. You know, um, I, this past week, uh, I went, I got a call. Uh, my brother, my, my dear brother, uh, lives in Houston as well. He uh, tells me there's a mace mitzvah. What's a mace mitzvah? You hear the term? Met, or met mitzvah. What does the word met mean? Dead. Dead. Mitzvah means a mitzvah. Yeah, it's like a dead mitzvah. What does that mean? No, I mean <laughs> so it sounds like. If somebody does die, whether you know the person or not. Right. So there's so there's a mitzvah in the Torah that if you have if you encounter a dead body, and there's no one there to bury it, it's called a mace mitzvah, or met mitzvah, and that is a, it's a mitzvah for everyone to bury, and, and and even people that are not allowed to contaminate themselves with dead people, like a kohen, a, a priest, or even the high priest on the day before Yom Kippur, that they have to stay. Uh, ritually pure, if they see a dead person that's no one there to bury, it's a mitzvah for them to bury him, and even if it means negating the, the, the uh, Yom Kippur service for the whole people. So I got to call this a mace mitzvah in town. Why? There's a Jewish person who died, who has no relatives here, nobody knows him, All right, there's, you know, there's no one there to bury him, can he join, join the, uh, the funeral? So actually, I got the funeral, we, had, we managed to get ten people together, we did the funeral in the Beth Jacob Cemetery, and actually, he had a son who was, came in from New York. Okay, so he had a son who didn't didn't live with him. But you know, I was thinking, and I'm there because it's I don't know this guy. I have no idea. I don't, I don't even know what the guy's name is. I don't know what the name is. Nothing, right? All I have is we have a box and a hole in the ground. And I was thinking how, you know, how emotional is it this? You know, is and how the son starts crying even they didn't know his dad or didn't live with him, whatever. And there's Kaddish, and you know we're putting the guy into his, into his uh, place of internment. And it's just, it's such a powerful experience. Because us living realize that we're one day going to be in that box. And obviously it's not fun to think about it, but we all know it's true. Is anyone here planning to live forever? Or hoping to live forever? No, we're all going to, you hope, right? <laughs> There's the, uh, the project that uh, people are doing, the anti-aging project. Let's find but, you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to die. We're all going to be in the box. And when you see the box and you help lower the box into the ground, it's really powerful. You don't know the guy. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't, do not know who the person is. No idea. I got a call. Can he come? I said, sure. I, you know, that experience is powerful. And we're trying to evoke that same it's you know that same emotions on Rosh Hashanah because it's very powerful for us on this day where we need this introspection more than ever. Make it easier for us by thinking about our death, Janet. I'm just, I'm just going to say I remember the first time I was living in California. The first time I knew Happy Life, and I went and I actually put dirt in the ground because of Children, uh, had to do that. We had to. We 
just lift the shovel and the dirt from the bucket and put it on top of the oh, yeah. casket. And that's, I don't know if that's customary at Jewish funerals. Yeah. But it was like. That's one of the great mitzvahs that you could do to bury no. someone. Just the Sorry, idea of lifting dead. and putting, and you know your mother is there. I mean. Well, your mother's body. I had another thought also, a little of a side topic, but I was thinking like how depressing would it be, just how depressing is death at large, how would it be if like this, I was thinking like we're on the 288, you know, take the 288 south, right, you're driving towards Pearland, but not quite in Pearland, and there's just miles and miles of empty land right south of the 610, and I'm, I'm there and I'm, and there's like, and there's a small quiet Jewish cemetery, and it, like I'm sitting in the heat, just unbearable heat. The sun is just right there, and we're taking the body and putting it into the ground. And if that was f- forever, like, how depressing would that be? Like this is where you are, the two eighty eight, the end of the world. No one will ever come visit you. Your son lives in New York. I, I doubt this guy, this guy's grave. Who knows if he'll ever be visited again? You know. But if we didn't believe in the idea of resurrection, like how depressing would that be? Well, thinking, you know, like this is it. You know, the culmination of your life is right here in the middle of nowhere with, uh, surrounded by no one you know be visit, never be visited right just some anonymous you know hole in the ground like how lucky or how fortunate are we that we have that we have um, the tradition and the and the evidence that 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 you know that life will continue that that, that it's not just a race to the end and the end is just we fall off the cliff like, no, not not. I don't know if we get do-overs, but we have the, the you know the afterlife. I, when afterlife is 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 is, is in term for for some sort of continuum. Even you know what, I think it's better to be in hell than to be nothing. You know, as weird as that sounds, even the thought of 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 exist continually existing is such a powerful powerful thought. And I was thinking about that. Like, if this is where this guy ends, like this is it for if they're done, their bodies in the ground forever and ever and ever and ever. How depressing would that be, you know? And how lucky are we that our that our religion demonstrates the idea of continually existing, the soul existing, the body even existing, uh, or going to be uh, revived? How powerful is that? A side, a side, a side note. Either way, um, back to Rosh Hashanah. I want to give a few more thoughts here. Um, we we like do eleven fifteen. How far can we go? Well, I mean, okay. okay, good. So, I, mean, I don't want to go too far over overboard because then the new people will never come back. They'll come back even more. So let, let, let me make a deal. The deal is, if you want to leave, you can leave at any time. I will. I, I promise you, I will not get offended. I promise. Um, if you want to leave, please leave. Don't overstay because if you overstay, you think you're doing a mitzvah, but really, what's going to happen is next time you'll say, "Oh, I, I, if I come, I have to stay too much later." And then you won't come, even for, even for. <laughs> so if you want to leave, and I, I promise you, will not get offended in any way. And I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of anyone coming for any amount of time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what about all of those that get turned into dirt and earth? Yeah, so do you think that the body is 
the same body or like this. Yeah, well, the Talmud says the Talmud said. I'm the Talmud says. The Talmud says that in this that in this iteration, this world, we're made out of water. Right, the primordial biological matter that we're all made out of. When we are rebuilt, we're made out of earth. Now, does that mean that God has to use the existing earth? Or there's a lot of earth out there, right? Uh, Adam was made out of earth. Which earth was Adam made out of? So we're actually told one time where, 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 which earth was, his head was made out of this earth, and this his torso and his legs and his arms very bizarre Talmud either way Adam is made out of earth and you know what he takes a human body put it into the ground it turns back into earth um, so I, I, I think that even if someone is uh, no matter what happens to the body does that same body get revived no it's not that same body that body is made out of water this body is made out of earth um, is something used from that body maybe uh, we are told there is this idea. I don't know where it's sourced. It's sourced somewhere that there is uh, some part of the body that gets that that is the at least the foundation upon which the body is going to be rebuilt. And no matter what you do, you can't get rid of that, even if you burn it at a thousand degrees. It's bone. Sorry. The loose bone. Loose. Yeah. Something like that. So I, I don't know where that's sourced. I have heard it. I think it's 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 uh, I've heard it several times. Yeah, but by the way, this is the one reason why um, one of the reasons why we don't we don't cremate because we believe the body has sanctity as well. The body is not just uh, a, a nuisance or it's something that was there that has no value post facto. We treat the body with tremendous dignity. It just it's one of the great experiences someone could have is to be involved in the Chaber Kadisha. No, I, I think especially once we're dealing with with death and burial and bereavement, there really is no differences, which is a very nice thing. Um, the Chaber Kadisha's. We'll get to the ovens in a second, um, um, but even in, like in Houston, all the Jewish funeral homes they have one standard for everything, no matter if it's Reform, Orthodox, Conservative, uh, Reconstructionist, any kind of variant of Jew that, that you like uh, uh, to describe, I think once we're dead, we kind of all follow the same standards, which is very nice. Um, when they do a tahara, which is preparing the body for burial, they don't ask, oh, what kind of Jew was this? And what standard should we give him? You know, him or her. So that, 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 that's something that I think it's, it's, it's one of my hopes. You know, it makes me hopeful for the Jewish people that at, at some points we don't have to always ask the question, oh, which Jew are you? you know, we could be a family that doesn't have to have uh, so many schisms in every area of our lives. So, so I think death and burial is one of the things that we don't even ask that question. But And you know what? In no in no Jewish sources do we find. Well, I guess we do. You know, I'm going to amend that. We do find some mentions of that, of but more like in historical narratives. But in Jewish law, there's no law that says, "Oh, there's this kind of Jew and that kind of Jew." There's Orthodox and Reform, and because these are new inventions, these are new terminologies. Uh, but they're not they're not traditional uh, descriptions of 
of different kinds of Jews, as if the Torah views. And the Torah says, like, even if someone sins, they're a Jew. You know, well, maybe if someone sins, they're a sinner Jew. No, they're not. They're 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 a Jew. So um, it seems like the Torah's perspective is not to take Jews and put them in different categories. And especially in Rosh Hashanah, we talked about the idea of being judged as a people as well as an individual. It's very important for us to try to not make these distinctions between which kind of Jew are you, and are you my kind of Jew or a different kind of Jew. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's especially in this time, it's important to realize that we are all part of one uh, one entity. Back to free will. Yeah, all Jews have free will. All Jews are, are, have the same Torah. You, you, you go to Torahs, you go, you go to any synagogue in the world, they got the same Torah, right? So, so what, what are we different? You know, and I think even today, like, if, if you know, I don't know what kind of Jew do you label yourself, or anyone here labels themselves as. I la- don't label myself as any kind of Jew. As a, as a Jew tries to try to be uh, observant and try to become a better Jew every day. That's the kind of label I get. I don't know where does where does that fit in on the spectrum. You know, I think it, every Jew should be like that. Uh, but I even think even on uh, the popular uh, or populist division of Jews into categories, those categories or those uh, differences are really not as big as they used to be. You know, if you ask the average conservative Jew or the average quote-unquote reformed Jew, what does it mean? What are the basic doctrine of the reformed Judaism or conservative Judaism? What's the difference? Most of them don't know. You know why? Because there really isn't a difference. The difference is maybe the degree of observance. That's it. Well, there's only one Torah, but there's a lot of different interpretations. No, not really. Not really. Not, they really aren't. But we are still split. Well, we're split in observance, but not necessarily in 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 in, in philosophy. Observance. If, if someone is if someone is less observant to morals, it doesn't mean they believe in a different Judaism. You know, I would say I would say that most Jews, regardless of what synagogue they go to, believe in the f- four or five major um, major precepts of, of Judaism. They believe in God. They believe in Torah. They believe you know in mitzvahs. And, the, you know, yeah, so, so what's the difference? So some Jews attend shul more often than others. Some are more fastidious in their, in their, in their observance of the mitzvahs. But why is there such a need to put them in different categories? You know, especially if at the core they really believe in the same thing. They don't know what they, don't know what they believe in, you know? They believe in a reformed Jew, you know? They just, you know, what does that mean? I think it's a little bit of a cop-out also to, to try to label yourself as, or say, I'm this, not, really? Well, what are you as an individual, you know? What have, what have you contributed? You know, not just say, oh, I'm part of this community or that community. What do you believe? You know, and I think it's incumbent upon us to really get our own Dutch in order not to say, oh, I'm this kind of Jew or that kind of Jew, right? right? To have your individual perspective, to not just be a, a you know, a, um, uh, not, to, not just, to not just limit yourself by saying, I'm going to associate with this people because my friends or I live in this neighborhood, they're from this kind of Jew. You know, I think we should be more demanding of ourselves, especially during the holiday se- season. Um, we should be more demanding of ourselves to know what it is that we believe and what, what it is that we hold dear. So, um, a few more themes here I wanna, uh, that we cannot really skip. I'm going to leave the idea of repentance till next week, till next time, because we're going to talk about repentance um, in, in, in the context of, of Yom Kippur more than Rosh Hashanah. But we, we, we are told that there are 10 days of repentance. The Sarasim Yitzhuva, 10 days of repentance. And the first two days are, are Rosh Hashanah day one and Rosh Hashanah day two. 
Thus, Rosh Hashanah, there's an element of repentance, even though if you look at the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, you find no mention of sin. Well, how do you repent if you don't mention your sins? Isn't repentance all about taking your sins and repenting for them? Right? You would think, right? And we don't mention sin, and yet it's one of the ten days of repentance. So what is the idea of repentance of Rosh Hashanah? I would say, perhaps we could say that repentance of Rosh Hashanah is if you accept, if Rosh Hashanah is about accepting the dominion of God, well, only then is it worthy to repent. What I mean by this is as follows. Like, if I said, okay, here's a mitzvah. Whatever that mitzvah would be. Let's say we're in Israel, and uh, it's the seventh, it's the Shemitah year, which it is currently. Shemitah. The mitzvah says, do not plant or sow your, your field on Shemitah. Oh, I say it's a mitzvah. And you say, why should I not sow my field? Well, it's a mitzvah. So what does that mean? It comes from God. Mitzvahs only have value because they come from God. If it doesn't come from God, well, then it's, it's a suggestion or it's a nice idea or maybe, maybe it has some meaning, but it's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. So Rosh Hashanah is the day that really enables repentance to happen. If we do not have Rosh Hashanah, well, why are we repenting for? If we don't believe that God gave us the mitzvah, then the mitzvah has no value. And if the mitzvah has no value, then why are we going to repent for our either lack of observance, our lack of dedication, lack of commitment to the mitzvah? Thus, a critical part of repentance is going to be the acknowledgement of the fact that a mitzvah is important because it comes from God. Thus, the beginning processes of the, of the repentance process is going to revolve around the fact that, a rec- that we're going to recognize the importance of, of, of God's dominion and its role in making a mitzvah uh, important. Shofar, the mitzvah of the, of the holiday is shofar. What's shofar about? And how does it relate to the elements, the themes of Rosh Hashanah that we have uh, enumerated? So I would say, simply, what does a shofar sound like? It sounds like a trumpet. You have a new kingdom. Right? Well, either you, know, you play the all hail to the kingdom, right? Rosh Hashanah is the day where God's kingdom is renewed. We take out our shofar, the trumpet, and we blow the, we blow the shofar to hail the new kingdom. That's one reason why we have the shofar. The Rambam Maimonides, he says another reason. And he says that, as follows, I'll read to you here. This is from the Laws of Repentance. Quote, Even though blowing the shofar of Rosh Hashanah is mandated by the verse. So if we just had a mitzvah of the Torah, blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, you would just do it because that's what the Torah says. However, he says, even though it's just a mitzvah of the Torah, however, there's some insight. There's a, there, you know, there's, a, there's a reason behind it. As if to say, wake up, wake up those that are sleeping from your slumber. Shofar is a wake-up call for us. And, ar- uh, and arise those that are slumbering from your slumber. Use two different words of sleep. And examine your actions and repent and remember God. And then he goes on to say, those that forget the truth with all the nonsense of the times, all the, uh, you know, we live a life. And life. We have our job and our family and our commute and, and the news and the politics and Donald Trump and all that. There's so many things that we busy ourselves with 
that we kind of sleep on the thing that's most important. That's the ultimate purpose. And shofar is this wake-up call. We're trying to shake us out of our, uh, you know, of our continually uh, um, um, forgetful slumber, and we, we live the whole year, and we waste our time, so to speak. On themes, he writes, uh, emptiness that doesn't help you, doesn't save you. Examine your soul. Improve your ways. And everyone should, uh, should abandon their, 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 their negative path of, of action and thought and do tshuva. But that's what, that's what, that, that's what the, the hallowed sounds of the chauffeur, that, that's the emotion it's trying to, to wake us up. We're sleeping. You know? What happens when someone's sleeping? What's the most dangerous thing that can happen when someone's sleeping? Well, they could die in their sleep, but they're not aware. What's so terrifying about someone driving while they're sleeping? They're not aware. That, that's terrifying, right? Is there anything more dangerous than someone? Right? Why? They could kill themselves, they could kill the passengers, they could kill pedestrians, they kill everyone. Anyone, they, they are a, a ticking time bomb. Is there any way to drive from here to New York and sleep the whole way? I know about that, yeah. No, but that's why it's just an analogy. <laughs> but the analogy is, is very powerful. And imagine we're at this, we're at the helm, we're at the driver's seat of life, of the entire universe is depending upon us, and we're sleeping. Can you imagine how terrifying that is? How disastrous it is for everyone, for us, for our passengers, for the people in the whole world. It's a disaster. Go ahead. And, and it's a sound that's such a, it's such a powerful, yes, and, and it's, yeah, and, it, and it's a sound designed to wake up our soul, even though we hear it physically, but it stirs us spiritually, and, it, and it's amazing, like if you just saw, if you just experienced the chauffeur, if you just heard that sound, it awakens something within you, and, it, and, it, and, and you know what, if you blow the chauffeur out, if someone is actually sleeping on the couch, you blow the chauffeur, you'll awaken them. But the shofar has a power to awaken more than just the sleeping body. It's the sleeping soul. We have a soul that's sleeping at the wheel. At the wheel of life, the soul is sleeping. And the shofar has a power to wait to, you know, to, to wait to, to wait to wait that up. So I wanna I wanna finish with a few more points here. Um, you know, Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Yet we treat it like a holiday. So it's a little bit of a of a you know, of, yeah, of dichotomy. Thank you, John. Um, it seems like if a day of judgment, you, you would be terrified. You know, if it was really a day of if we really treated it like a day of judgment, wouldn't we all be terrified? And it's a holiday. You know, we, we have the special holiday meals. We got all the signs that we do. You know, we do the signs of the, the dip the apple in the honey. And it's, it seems like it's a very positive experience. On the other hand, you would be terrified, really. And I think that, they, that kind of both of these points are true. It's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity. This is our birthday. We can reinvent ourselves. This is the anniversary of God's kingdom. We can be critical players in bringing the kingdom to its ultimate fruition. 
And that's a very positive thought. And like Janet mentioned, it's something that we have to reflect not only about the bad things, but the good things as well. You know, and, and I would even say that perhaps it's even more important to think about what you are accomplishing and thinking about how you could bolster it or improve it or expand it in, in, in some way. That's also very, very powerful. Like I, I would say, you know, we're here studying Torah. It's a very positive thing. Even though, even if we don't do anything about our Torah stuff, we do nothing. Assume we do nothing. Yeah. Or we drink coffee here, right? We're, you know, but we 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 are studying Torah. Even if this was, it, we didn't take this further. That in itself is maybe one of the best things we could possibly do. So we're studying Torah. Go ahead. I have a friend in Florida who's very Orthodox. What does that mean? He's very observant, okay. Very observant. And so I told him I was doing this. So he said, you have to be very careful about what you're doing. Because if you start learning these things and you don't act on them, then you have a greater degree of responsibility. That's right. Oh. Yeah. So disregard everything I, I just said. But <laughs> <laughs> then I have to ask you about that. It's a, you know, it's a good point. Uh, because if someone grows up maybe with, a, I guess, a, a weaker or, you know, a, a weaker, let's say, background in Jewish learning. Well, they can't necessarily be held accountable for what they don't know, right? Yeah. And then, you know, maybe it's good. Is it, maybe it's better to stay ignorant. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, Islam says the same thing. If you have read the Quran and you do not then fall in love with it and become a Muslim, then you're accountable. But if you've never been exposed to the Quran, then, you know, it will just slaughter you. So, sage advice, sage yeah. advice. Um, I, you know, it's, you're bringing up a good point, um, and that is, we even find this in um, in, in halachic sources. Mm-hmm. We find the idea of mutav shiyu shogigin. It's better for someone to be to do something by mistake. Like if you see someone's going to sin, uh, they don't know a certain law. So then you'll say, you know what, I'll tell them that law, but you know for sure they're going to continue sinning. There are some instances when you might say, it's better for them to do it, but to do it and not realize that they're sinning than to do it, you know, it, after they realize that, you know, to do, to do it now, now they're, now they're real sinners, you know? Mm-hmm. As opposed to earlier, they were just, you know, they, you know, they were just ignorant. Uh, and so I think that, they, that, that is true um, sometimes. However, I don't. I think it's at at large, it's always better. You know, in Ju- especially in Judaism, we don't believe in in being ignorant. And above all, we're a very cerebral nation, right? We want to, you know, we know. It's very important for us to know as well. And I think even the Torah study on its own, we don't realize what it actually does to us. And I think we we underestimate the power of Torah study because uh, we don't necessarily see changes that happen within ourselves. You know, we study about kindness. We, we don't necessarily see how that impla- impacts our behavior. We don't. Uh, yet it does. And it does in a way that makes us not even realize it, which is incredible. Uh, but I think that maybe there's a difference between learning laws regar- regarding behavior versus learning laws regarding to big picture. You know, If a Jew lives their life 
not knowing what it means to be Jewish, the power, the impact, the role and responsibility as well of what it means to be Jewish, that's, that's a real tragedy. I think a Jew that has a sense of purpose and has a sense of understanding of what Torah is, what, the, what it means to be part of the Jewish people, what the role and responsibilities of the Jew are, maybe is not perfect in, in their actualization of that. But I think it's still, I'd, I'd still take that. I'd still rather have that. But yeah, you are. I'm saying, you know, you're on the hook now. <laughs> yes. I, I look at it a little bit different because our experience has been not the more we learn is not that we had to do it; it's that we wanted to do it. That we, it's more like be careful because you're gonna love, you're gonna want to do those, those um, want to do more, and you want to do those, um, you know, those commandments. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the thing with us is that the love of Hashem wanted us to go further and wanted that there was a, an attraction to do those things, not like, oh, i got to do that now that I know it. It was more of a, hey, you know, I want to do it. Yeah, but both, both of those are true because, you know, our soul is very much attracted to this. Like the way Ramchal, back to Lusatan, he describes it as two magnets, very powerful magnets. Our soul wants nothing more than to do mitzvahs. Nothing more. Our body is not at all natural doing a mitzvah. It's not at all a natural experience for your body. In fact, it's very unnatural. It's, it's counter, counter-natural or counterintuitive for your body's intuitions to want to do mitzvahs. And those, that, you know, that tension uh, is what makes our life um, interesting and purposeful and meaningful. The fact that on one hand we're being pulled, on the other hand we're being repelled away from mitzvahs. Um, but I do think also, like, yeah, there is such a thing as being naturally drawn uh, to doing mitzvahs, of course. Um, I want to finish off with a, maybe a way to, 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 in a practical way, to try to make this um, Rosh Hashanah meaningful for us. So, of course, the prayers are very, very good. If you actually, I actually brought some prayers, but we don't have any time to go through them. Uh, just some samplings of, of what we say in Rosh Hashanah and to see how that really uh, how that really goes together with what we were um, discussing, um, but you know, these are some samples. But obviously, there's an entire book here Can that I, I brought. Ask a question: A number of people say Salichot. Yes. Salichot means in Hebrew is um, I forgive. Okay. So, is there a different prayer every single day that somebody says for Salichot? And you're supposed to say that Tina said a month during the month. So like this, uh, the Sephardic custom is to start from the beginning of the month of Elul. The Ashkenazic custom actually started last night. So last night at 1.15 a.m. Like, can you imagine getting Jews to come to synagogue at 1.15 a.m.? We had hundreds of people in our synagogue last oh, night. Really? Yeah. Um, and 1.15 a.m., I said it's, it's on a Sunday, right? There's a Sunday, it's, it's Sunday morning, early morning. But um, just that in itself, you know, it's pretty interesting. But... Uh, and we said slichot. Slichot is, is slichot means uh, forgiveness, but it can mean seeking forgiveness as well. But it's trying to get us in the mode of, 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 of Rosh Hashanah. And the prayers are also, like we said, are designed to do that. Uh, the shofar is designed to do that. And, and we said there's, there's, there's the, the themes, all the themes we mentioned, themes of renewal, man's anniversary, anniversary of God's kingdom, um, self-introspection, etc. And you call the shofar Repentance. Daily, right? Show for every morning for the whole for the whole month of Elul, and on Rosh Hashanah is a hundred times you blow a shofar, one hundred times. 
Uh, so I was thinking, like, what is something that we could do? Like, we always have the idea of a New Year's resolution, right? So resolution, where is it's a way to take the inspiration of the, of the holiday and try to make it last. Because very often, as the time passes, the inspiration dissipates as well. So how are we going to take the inspiration that hopefully we're going to draw from the holiday, how are we going to take that and make it really change us, you know, uh, on, a, on a broad scale uh, throughout the rest of our lives and throughout the rest of the year as well. So there has be, traditionally been a, a uh, practice for Jews to protect upon themselves some sort of resolution. Um, and it's important to tailor the resolution to the judgment. Like if you had a judge, that if the judge came and said, hey, you're not doing enough, to bring to you know to be an ambassador for God in the world, that's what the holiday is about. So then the, the resolution should be in trying to personally and communally bring the idea of God to the world. So I was thinking like, what can we do? I just have some examples here. Um, what can we do to make our resol- make a powerful resolution? This is what we should be thinking. How can we make a powerful resolution on the holiday of Rosh Hashanah? that will impact us throughout the whole year, but not something too big that we will just do it once or twice and then not do it ever again. So I had some ideas, and then these are just some ideas that I thought of uh, that I think would be easy enough, yet would be valuable as to try to make the influence of Roshana last throughout the whole year. So my thoughts were, uh, this is, um, just, I'll give you guys one idea, but then you're, you're free to choose uh, your own idea that you think will be impactful for you. But, we have uh, a mitzvah to say blessings, blessings before the, before we eat, and this is something which is very very. Or I think my it's the, I think there's a big gap between how difficult it seems and how easy it really is. Um, and we're told that we should make a hundred blessings a day. Now, a hundred blessings sounds like a lot, but if you think if you think about it, it it's a hundred times that you're vis- revisiting the idea of God in control. Right, the, the the preamble of every blessing is blessed are you Hashem, right? Our God, the King of the world. Right? You are saying out loud, you're uh, you're really embodying the fact that God is King of the world. That, that's what every blessing is. And it's a certain recognition. You know what? If you say a hundred blessings a day, I would hope that maybe one of them is something that you actually think about. You know, but if you say a hundred a day, invariably at least once throughout the whole year, you'll think about that. You know, but it's still an action of bringing the idea of God being in total dominion over all, you're expressing it. You're bringing it out to the world. And we ha- and it's easy. Like there's, you know, blessings before food. It's something you take to you maybe a half a second. To, to, you know, I don't know, half a second. Maybe five seconds at the most. You know, six, seven words. That's it. If you don't know the book, is it just as equal just in your own words to consciously No, but you could, you, could, you could learn it. It's not so hard to learn. It's very easy. I, I had someone who said, well, there's so many different food types. And I said, I will teach you to all, all in three minutes. Yes. And I said, okay, put the clock on. Three minutes, I'll teach you all the six food categories. That's not hard. I taught that to my daughter, too. And Simple. She got it in one Get the set. blessings. And the, the blessings all start off the same. Baruch Hashem, And then either Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Like four words. It's really not hard but to learn. But outside of food. There's like all these blessings for okay, the bathroom, the scene, the rainbow. If you don't know those, you can just say. Or you should learn those. But I'm, I'm not yeah. trying. I'm not trying. I'm not going to let you off the hook here. I'm, okay. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to let you do this. Okay. Okay. I know what you want me to say. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> uh, 
because mm-hmm. you know these things you know I'm, I, of course you're right of course bringing God into your life is important uh, but some things are also so easy that maybe not the rainbow how often do you see a rainbow you know uh, but you go to the bathroom five, six times a day, right? right? It's not hard. It's not hard enough to memorize to justify saying, oh, "I'll just say, I'll just say, I'll oh, thanks God for the, let me go to the bathroom," you know. Um, but like such a thing, it's 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 simple and it becomes a habit, and it could be so impactful because every day, multiple times a day, you're bringing that idea of God into the world, and you may not be so conscious of it, maybe more conscious, less conscious, but it's easy. It's simple. It's not going to obstruct your life or be something such a nuisance that you'll have to do, oh, gosh, i got to put on tefillin now. It takes seven minutes or something like that. Or, oh, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, I don't know, whatever. You know, I can speak Lashon Hara. Every conversation I'll have now, oh, gosh. You know, every conversation I have to critically analyze it. Is this Lashon Hara or not? Uh, you're so used to speaking about other people, it's really hard to change. But, you know, when you eat, you eat five, six times a day, five, six blessings. Uh, it's something that could be done with Ease, essential, you know, essentially. Obviously, you have to learn the blessings and remember them. But it becomes it's a habit forming, and it's a, such an easy way. I think, as an example, if if, if that's uh, an example that you want to do to maybe take the influence of Rosh Hashanah and let it permeate throughout your lives and throughout your year, just an idea, maybe to make a, a resolution that's not so hard, could be very impactful. Do we have to say it aloud? Like the no. No, you, you, you verbalize it. It doesn't be allowed. Uh, just an idea. You can think of whatever idea you want, but think of something that you can do in Rosh Hashanah. You can accept upon yourself for the whole year or at least for a month or two to try to engage this uh, power that you're awakening with the shofar. You know, it's, it's very important. Uh, it's the most important day, perhaps, of the year because it's the, it could be the most impactful day for you. Okay, that's that, guys. Everyone have a happy Rosh Hashanah. Yes, go ahead. Another question. I was taught someplace along the line that you have the 10 days of repentance and the Rosh Hashanah between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. But somewhere it's written that there is an extra little time through Sukkot, if I remember correctly, that you think that God seals it on Yom Kippur, but there's a little room for if you didn't get a chance to do such and such by the end of Sukkot. I think it's Sukkot. Then now that's it. Yeah, so I, the way I would say it is maybe the verdict I was finalized in Yom Kippur, but you could still appeal it, you know. Yeah. So you have till the end of Well, not really. You have to really, you have, you have till Yom Kippur, and that's when you should do it. If you don't do it, it's never too late. I have an announcement to make. So I, I know some newer people came in after I asked for this, but if you're not getting the emails from